Welcome to the Final Draft Great Conversations podcast. Today's great conversation is with JP Pamari. The Final Draft Great Conversations podcast is all about books, writing, and literary culture. I'm Andrew Popel, and every week I broadcast Final Draft from the studios of 2SER in Sydney. Final Draft is dedicated to exploring Australian writing, from debut authors to household names. Every week, we look into the issues that drive our storytelling and help you discover more from the books that you love. These are the stories that make us who we are. To SEO broadcast from the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and I'm recording on the lands of the Darug and Gunungurra people. I want to acknowledge the traditional owners of those lands, pay my respects to their ongoing connection to their lands. This is stolen land. Treaty was never made in Australia. J.P. Pamari's first novel, Call Me Evie, won the Nio Marsh Award for Best First Novel in 2019. Last year, Josh and I spoke about his incredible thriller of Life in a Cult in the Clearing. He's got a new novel coming out later this year, but today we are going to be discussing his most recent, it's called Tell Me Lies, it's a stunner. Margot is a successful psychologist, thriving practice, beautiful family, and an academic interest in antisocial personality disorder. On an otherwise uneventful night, Margot is woken by the sound of broken glass. The family escapes through their open front door to see flames blooming from Margaret's office window. Someone has firebombed their house. Join me as we discover J.P. Pomari's Tell Me Lies. Hello? Hello? Oh, sorry. Hang on. Josh, is that you, Josh? Can you? I, I think you can hear me now. Oh, terrific. So, sorry about that, mate. You're, um, you're coming through all my audio equipment, but I answered on my phone. I just had to adjust where it was talking to me. <laughs> right. <laughs> sorry about that. I was, um, yeah, I'd, I'd sort of adjusted. The, you don't need to know all the technical side of this. So I had my um, phone on silent. I've got a little uh, sleeping baby in the house. But... <laughs> yeah. Fair enough. You you. <laughs> If you need to, if you need to whisper through the uh, through the interview, I can just. No, no, my my pleasure. I've got to. Um, no, but I like like talking, uh, especially if it keeps me away from um, working, which is probably my favourite form of procrastination. Um, <laughs> um, and it's great. It's great to be chatting again. Um, gosh, you're, you're you're prolific, and I've I realised. I read in the uh, sorry. I read Tell Me Lies in about a day, a month or so ago, and I realised I didn't actually look at the little um, excerpt from the last guest. So I've just in the last little bit been having a look at that, and I'm already excited. Um, Josh, you're like you're like the King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard of thrillers. Tell Me Lies is gripping. How do you keep up this prolific pace? Um, Well, I I guess I mean in terms of. how prolific I am in putting books out or the pace of the actual novel? Uh, let's start with just the ideas and the, the thrills. I've, I've got so much to ask about the pace of the novel um, soon, but I love that we're getting just this turnaround. It's a year where we've needed these books. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think oh, what I would say is, you know, with um, in terms of my output, I've been... Um, I've been pretty lucky, I think, for the last few years. Um, I've noticed, this is a bit of a, I guess, an anecdote, but I have noticed um, that there tends to be a gap in the period in which novelists become novelists. So when 
people release their debuts. I've noticed that's usually, you know, uh, up until sort of early to mid-30s or often um, after the age of 50, say. Um, there seems to be a big gap there, and I think I know why, um, because I've had a little baby, um, and, um, and now I can't seem to get any, any work done whatsoever. Um, so I think it's, I think before I had my daughter Blake, I was, um, just had a singular focus and whenever I had an idea, I'd write it down and I would always be pretty far ahead of my deadlines and I'd always be working really hard. Um, so as much as I love the fact that I have set this blistering pace and I've been putting up, uh, or put up, you know, three books for my forthcoming later this year, I feel like I'm going to probably slow down with uh with a baby in the house and now that I am um the principal or primary caregiver. Um but yeah, I think it's just luck and, and the fact that I've got this great support network and the fact that until recently I've had no real distractions. I've just been able to commit wholly to, to writing. Never say die, like I see a big gap in the market for a psychological thriller in and around a crèche. Uh, there is a lot of politics. <laughs> there is a lot of politics in the in the sort of not to two-year-olds. Well, I had this idea that I could, you know, be full-time because my wife works full-time. I could be the full-time caregiver and still write um, or, or, or have this kind of, you know, this output. Um and, but I'm, I was so naive and I've spoken to so many people who had had kids and I just thought, you know, I'll just somehow make it work. Um, but we are getting a bit of help now. So we've got a nanny that allows me to work a couple of days a week. Um, and I'm just learning to adapt. But you, you, you're probably right. I think there's, I mean, I feel like Petronelle and the Govan's first novel was sort of around childcare. Um, and the politics of childcare and, you know, parents interacting and that sort of thing. Um, but yeah, maybe that's, maybe it will just be a, a refocusing for me. Maybe I'll begin to write about my experiences as a, uh, as a new father. Oh, I think, I think there are a lot of people that will want to read that and, and probably need to read that. Let's, um, let's jump into Tell Me Lies, because in Tell Me Lies, Margot, she's a successful psychologist. She's got a thriving practice, beautiful family and an academic interest in antisocial personality disorder. It's, it's all really working for her. But on an otherwise uneventful night, Margot is woken by the sound of broken glass. The family escapes through their mysteriously open front door to see flames blooming from Margot's office window. Someone has firebombed their house. So, Josh, you've written a psychological thriller here. It's called Tell Me Lies. The dramatic tension teeters on a knife edge of who is being truthful and who is false. It's magnificent. I hate giving away spoilers. I don't want to be that guy. So I guess my question is, what on earth are we going to talk about? What is safe for us to talk about in this book? <laughs> well, yeah, that's. I mean, I feel like um, my work, but most books actually, but I, I, I certainly feel like my work, it's best to go in with no real idea of what the story is about, um, because I think, I mean, I mean, I will obviously talk about what the story is about, but I think part of the, the um, appeal, I guess, of work like mine is not only you know the suspense and that page turning factor, but it's but it's also the, the mystery um, and just trying to figure out where you're at in the story, who's who, and what's happening. Um, 
But yeah, there's no real safe territory with this one because from very early on there's there's sort of twists. Um, but yeah, what what it's I mean, I would also say about this story that it's um, the, why it was so fun to write and hopefully for Australian in particular um, Melbourne readers is it's quite a sort of you know metropolitan setting that would be familiar to many and that's the kind of South Yarra. Um, area, the Domain Precinct and the, and the Tan running track and that kind of cafe culture and inner city life. Um, so Margot, yeah, is essentially a psychologist who, you know, sees, for the most part, um, pretty typical housewives in that area, uh, wealthy, um, and wealthy people have different problems, obviously, to poor people. Um you know, so she's dealing with lots of issues around infidelity and, you know, uh, just that kind of annuity that comes with um, living a life without, you know, any, without a great deal of purpose, I suppose. Um, so she's sort of, most of her clients are pretty, pretty much uh, typical, um, pretty, this, this common fear for psychologists, there's a few um, teenagers with eating disorders and that sort of thing. Um, but then she has three really interesting cases, uh, and they were interesting for me. Otherwise, I wouldn't have wanted to write about them at all. There's three characters that I myself really wanted to understand: the psychological landscape and, and their profile, and you know their, their personal histories, what led them to this. But the, the most fascinating thing of all is they they are all unreliable in the sense that they um, the lies they tell they may believe them themselves, if, if that makes sense. You know, I think we all sort of lie to ourselves, but the fun in this story was the reader as well as Margot has to try to figure out which ones are lying, who's lying and what are they lying about. Um, but, yeah, beyond that kind of premise, um, there's not too much more I can say. I mean, there's a thread about uh, the effects of... Um, viewing enormously traumatic material on a daily basis and if that's your work obviously your means of income then um, you know that that can present a real challenge and that's one character Joe's employment there's obviously other other threads about um, uh, well there's a thread about you know online gaming and again the, the sort of different forms of trauma we are exposed to in that realm different um, challenges that young people face that previous generations never faced in terms of online bullying, in terms of, uh, you know, the content they're exposed to as far as comments and interactions with other online gamers, some of the language they use. You know, I've been shocked and just my very limited experience of playing any sort of online games, I've been really shocked by just how callous people are um, and, and how callous they become when other people are represented simply as avatars, you know, like online. Mm, so yeah. yeah, there's a whole bunch of whole bunch of stuff in there. But as I said, in terms of narrative, it's really difficult not to, uh, you know, stumble into spoiler territory. So we've got that. We've got that difficulty here, which is kind of the whiplash pace of twists that you 
you give us and and sometimes they're more direct and other times you've got you had me thinking I think I know what's going on here only to to be kind of pivoted again but it works because of again that pacing that uh, we alluded to earlier so as a psychologist you've already acknowledged that Margot understands her clients may lie to her and as we follow her first person point of view even when she's not at the center of the action we, we have to be aware that things are going on. What decisions do you then, as the writer, have to make about how those facts are going to come out? Obviously, Margot can't suddenly become prescient or, or omniscient. How do you go about describing the action through that, that lens? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, there's um, so many reasons why you should take uh, the perspective of, of one character and start from first person um, and that I think great intimacy um, and also you can there's a lot of fun to be had with a unreliable narrator as well mm-hmm. um, so, I, so I really enjoy first person narration but as you said there's real limitations too um, so what I what I do and what I have done actually in all of my books is um, I doubt it Side of the narrative, I have these breaks where I'll employ often other forms of media. Um, so, and and the clearing, the sort of podcast interview and news stories and just conversations. And in this instance, uh, there's breaks in the main narrative to look at a, um, a, a historical case. One of Margot's, when she was a social worker before she was a psychologist, when she was. Um, uh, I forget what the, what the, you know, the official term is, what, how they how they describe, but essentially someone who would conduct home visits on vulnerable people to check in. Um, yep. And this this kind of narrative thread is uh, it sets up Margot's personality in a sense. You get a you get a origin story, of, you know, early Margot psychologist to this acclaimed. Um, Psychologist who has a academic sort of bent as well, so um, that that was employed as well. And I think if I hadn't used these kind of um, third party sort of perspectives, particularly uh, another thread is journal entries that are um, that are you don't know who they're from mm. or necessarily who they're talking about or what they're talking about, but these journal entries that are being read aloud in a court of law. Um, and so, one, I think, yeah, I think it just adds texture. Um, but as you said, you know, to keep the pace up, I think you kind of need, in my view, you sort of need these, uh, for lack of a better word, distractions or asides, um, so that readers are always speculating how they tie in, um, you know, and, and what these things sort of represent for the broader narrative. So, yeah, it was quite fun, um, this one, because it's a bit shorter and there was probably less requirement to, um, I guess, to add lots of speakers because a shorter narrative naturally is going to be a little bit faster paced as well. Mm. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's one of those decisions I had to sort of make quite early on to stick with Margot's perspective, despite my frustrations and trying to, you know... Um, she has to be in every scene, you know, for the main narrative and 
you're also seeing her perspective and um, she can be quite unreasonable. So how she views certain incidents um, might not be the way that the reader's viewing them. So there's also that between the reader and, and the narrator as well. I guess there's a sense of claustrophobia that emerges from being that close to someone as well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I love books where you want to shake the um, protagonist um, because they're missing something you can see. And that's not you predicting twists or anything like that. It's, a, it's an old trope in horror films where you can see the victim and you see the killer coming up behind them, you know? Mm. Um, and it's, and I, I sort of wanted to achieve that here at some level. I wanted um, readers to be constantly speculating on who's the person who's firebombed Margot's home and, and why. But I also wanted to lead, um, lead readers in a way to someone much earlier than Margot. I want to read to suspect someone much earlier than Margot. So there is that tension between the reader and the character where they're growing frustrated and, and they you know, and they really, hopefully, if I've achieved some kind of um, empathy between the readers and the character, hopefully they're rooting for Margot or they're, they're wanting her to see what they see. Because um, like I said, it, for some it may be, you know, it may not be, what they want in a book but for me I just love that tension I love that you know I, I love the, the, the way that um, writers can create that kind of tension and, and that kind of frustration um, and see how it sort of plays out sorry my daughter's just woken and she's making, she's making absolutely do you, do you need some time or is no she's alright she's just like I'm flying around with her she's um, I've just got her like looking at Looking at plants. I want to. I wonder if we can just explore a little bit more of the way you structure that narrative. And also, you were talking there a little bit about what readers might or might not want. You you mentioned the influence of gaming and the way that plays into the story. You also mentioned podcasts at one point, and I wondered, in terms of structuring narrative, say podcast podcast narrative has really interesting melding of, of sort of found audio and traditional narration and then things that might come from other sources. Gaming has that tradition where you will have um, cutscene narration that will intersperse the more uh, sort of reader, you know, sorry, the gamer-driven action. Are any of those sort of more modern narrative multimedia styles playing into your thinking as you um, as you structure? I mean, I know, for instance, you start with an incredibly explosive prologue that we then work through the book to kind of catch up to. Yeah. I, I mean, um, again, if we're talking craft-wise, um, I think more than, probably more than most writers, I look out side of the form for inspiration. Um, I think all writers do this, actually. Maybe I'm giving myself too much credit. Um, but I, I make a, a point of really um, trying to find new and exciting ways to tell the stories I want to tell um, and how that manifests, is, as I said. You know, I like to include podcasts and interviews and stuff like that. I think these things are probably becoming more and more common as well. Um, I don't know if there's anything genuinely um, 
invented these days about including a podcast episode transcript and a crime narrative, you know. Um, entire books have been told from just podcast transcripts. Um, but it is an exercise for me as well in accessing the story from another viewpoint. Um, and I do, you know, I, I just think when I read it, it's that thing you, you want to be surprised. You want to, you know, I think 90,000 words read in order um, can be can be fatiguing, uh, you know, intellectually. It can be, you know, I, I think it can, readers, savvy crime and thriller readers can grow bored of that kind of um, structure. So, yeah, it's just I'm always looking at different media and I'm always thinking about um, I'm always sort of watching film to get inspiration. I'm always, I'm even reading outside of the genre. Um, and but, but like I said, you're trying to integrate different forms of media mm. um, in a way that's reasonable as well. You know, I think if I put a cutscene from a video game in this, uh, or just described it, you know, flat to the page, what's happening in a cutscene, it would have to be really, really important to the narrative for me to, to bother doing that. Um, and saying that, you know, news, um, online commentary, you know, like in my next book, there's an entire um, chapter that is a um, just conversation, just a transcript of, um, of a conversation between two anonymous individuals on a, on a, you know, a website uh, that's um, the equivalent of like the 4chan or, you know, one of those really kind of horrible uh, toxic places on the internet. Um, yeah. Oh, wow. So, yeah. So, and that's, um, you know, that's from the last guest. So, yeah, it's just, I think it's, um, it's like that thing when you, when you look at something through the sort of perspective, it also opens up new narrative possibilities. Mm. Uh, and so, because I do prefer first person, I don't want to necessarily just leap on the present to just um, I'm missing it. Sorry, just to just as a bit of a cheat because I can't think of a creative way for my character to actually experience or see something that's important to the narrative. You know, so I so I think, well, how else can I how else can I get this information across, and what's going to be the most um, enjoyable? Um, and, and, you know, exciting way of getting this information across. What's going to keep it fresh? But, yeah, it's, if you think of anything new that I haven't done or included, uh, I think, you know, like, when I think about this sort of stuff, my mind always goes back to a visit from the Goon Squad by um, Jennifer Egan, which oh, is, yep. you know, there's a chapter that's just slides, like a, like a PowerPoint presentation. Mm. Um, and that's like 40 pages or something I'm not sure it is a significant chunk of that book and I'm not Jennifer Egan I don't think I'll ever write as well as Jennifer Egan um, but the point is you know readers we, we've got to give readers the benefit of the doubt that they can piece this into the narrative and it will make sense um, and it's just a creative and fun way of getting this information across. So there's a whole bunch of pretty experimental stuff in there, um, postmodern or whatever you want to call it. Um, I think and so, is, yeah, I, I just go, – go ahead, sir. I, I think there is that that hunger for exploring – 
the different ways that media sort of gets to us now. I mean, you, you just got me then thinking about um, Ian Ryan's new book that I've just read, The Spiral, has an entire section and there's a big part of the narrative that is influenced by the old Choose Your Own Adventure books. There is an entire yeah. section that, that riffs on that where there's a, there's a chunk of that book that I haven't read because he gives me the opportunity to choose where I jump through the narrative for a good... 50 odd pages and it, it really kind of challenged me and it's going to give me a chance to go back and I think maybe reread some of that. Well, I'm, um, that's on my list because I, I read a review, uh, about it this morning. Um, and I think the reviewer, uh, with all due respect to them, um, seemed to have really missed the point of the book, um, and, and reviewed it like as though it was as a crime novel. And I think it sounds really, experimental and sort of spectic kind of. Um, but that's the exact type of book that I love and I anticipate I really enjoy uh, Anne's new book. Um, and, you know, the same goes for, I think it's another Anne, I forget his surname, but uh, there's another book called um, This Is the End, is it? Uh, I think we should end things. I think it's called. I'm thinking of end th- ending things, sorry. Um which again is, um, you know, less so perhaps form-wise, but certainly narrative-wise is really experimental and you don't really know where you are at the story. And, um, and it, I would still say structurally and, you know, within the form of the narrative, it's still pretty experimental, some of the viewpoints and where you are in the story. Um, and, yeah, it's one of those books that readers either loved or hate, hated, and those who hate it probably didn't get it, you know, didn't, mm. it just wasn't, wasn't them, but those who liked it, loved it. Um, and I think that's, you know, that's the mark of, for me, that's the mark of uh, the best kind of fiction is, um, <laughs> is not, you know, mildly pleasing or acceptable for everyone. Um, it, it's really challenging for some, but absolute bliss for others. Um, evoking, so yeah, I think, evoking and, those strong reactions. Yeah, yeah, but but in saying that, you know, I also accept reluctantly that I am uh, in in the commercial crime space, and you know, popularity and appeal is a is a is a chief concern for um, me and my publishers. But in saying that, I want to push, I want to stretch readers. Um, I'm I'm prepared to accept I'll probably lose or alienate some readers, but I I still want to stretch this genre um, as much as I can in terms of narrative structure for sure i think this i think what you're saying there though really nicely ties into the the whole idea behind tell me lies or as as i read it and the ways that we we shape and also tell ourselves our own reality i mean one aspect of i guess the media landscape we've just been discussing in the multifaceted reality that emerges in tell me lies is this capacity for violence and also the ways violence surrounds us in our sort of everyday mundane reality you already mentioned one of margot's clients he's a moderator of violent images for a social media platform and i wondered then like you you were talking there about how some readers you might lose readers readers will kind of self-censor themselves of the books that they they go for and something similar happens in our online world. Do you do you think we have any sort of perspective on those capacities for violence that you explore in uh, in Tell Me Lies? It's it's a good question, and it's something I wrangle with. I mean, our subconscious always appears in our own work, um, 
and something I've been thinking about a lot. I'm always fascinated by it because um, I do think you, I do think you lose your innocence. You know, as a as a human, um, you get desensitized so easily, so suddenly, and without necessarily meaning to. You know, without even understanding perhaps what's happening to you. Um, and so, like in the last guess, which is my next novel, which I'm, I'm, you know, it may just be fatigue of talking about this book, but I'm much more excited about, um, you know, it's a, it's a big, high concept kind of novel about Airbnbs and cameras and stuff like that. But there's right at the core of the story again is this idea of um, fundamentally changing uh, our brain, you know. Mm-hmm not just how we think, but the actual physical structure of the brain change, you know, it's neuroplasticity. It's this idea that, you know, when you do frequently expose yourself to a certain level of violence, the brain to protect your psyche becomes desensitized to it. To protect yourself, you, you sort of come to accept this level of violence and it's every day and it's horrible. Um, and I interviewed an essay, a couple of SAS members for my next book who have um, experienced violent combat, seeing people die, you know, seeing callous, um, you know, the, the callous nature of war and death. And, um, and they talk about how they'll never be the same. Um, they talk about how... Um, the sub idea that you, they're trained to kill, but they can never be untrained because to kill you have to be completely desensitized. And I've read so many transcripts about, you know, interviews with um, often American soldiers. There's there's quite a lot of research into how they're trained and why they why they're so prepared to kill. And one particular interviewer, a man, um, talks about how he just killed four people. And when asked what, you know, how did it feel? What did he do after? He's like, oh, I just, to be honest, I just wanted a, I think it was something as banal as I wanted a can of Coke. I went back to the base and had a can of Coke, played cards. Mm. And I just remember thinking that, that you, and by the way, this guy, I think from memory, this, this is one of the people that were, uh, later convicted. Um, I don't know if it was, uh, Blackwater stuff, but I, I just, from memory, this person was convicted of later of subsequent war crimes. Probably been pardoned. I mean, I think def- probably been subsequently yeah, pardoned by Trump. I, I think you you may actually be right. I'm not sure, but this the funny. I mean, it's not funny. The sad part of all of this is blaming the individuals, which rightly we we must condemn them. You know, um, and I know we've probably got off topic a little bit here, but ultimately the psychology has been corrupted. Um, the, the, the light of information these people receive in training about the enemy, you know, yeah. this this kind of um, constant, um, uh, what's it, you know, like this message that's delivered to them over yeah. and over and over again um, until that's they've got no choice but to believe it and combat training, everything um, prepares them to kill and it really desensitizes them the act of taking a human life and violence. So, a sense that her, their reality actually becomes very different to a day-to-day reality as we understand it. Yeah, and more and more evidence is showing that that you can't get that back. And when we talk about lost 
most innocent steps. You know, we're not just talking about, you know, uh, sex education or whatever. You know, we're not talking about it in the, the sense that, um, you know, the, the church might speak about it, for instance. We're talking about a, um, a fundamental restructuring of our perspective of what we accept. Um, and so when, you know, that's why in, in um, coming lives, I've wanted to incorporate what I see as a growing problem with uh, the tech community um, and, and, and the future of jobs, you know, the future of what jobs we will all have in 10, 20 years, and a content moderator, a role that is essentially a human being viewing uh, the most um, obscene, the most corrupting, the most foul and disgusting content, uh, be it comments or actual images, um, child pornography and child exploitation material, um, torture scenes, um, people with their heads blown off, videos of people burning to death, all these horrible, horrible things that we can scarcely imagine. People share this content on social media routinely and someone has to take it off. And so they're just viewing this all day, every day. Um, and, you know, I can't even begin to imagine the sort of damage that would do to someone in the, in the long term. Um, they all, they seek psychologists, of course. You know, I think that's part of the, the role. But this is low-income work and mm. like abattoir workers who go on to, you know, who become completely desensitized to the act of pushing a knife into a body, you know, mm. Uh, and then they can commit all sorts of cruel acts on animals as a result of that. And this idea that young children who hurt animals become um, psychopaths, all this stuff sort of tied to this, you know, central principle that um, this is how dangerous people cut their teeth is by by being desensitised to the nature of violence. Um, Well, it strikes me that, yeah. In Tell Me Lies, you... You explore this to its to a you know a, a huge potential uh, in terms of the way narrative works. Then, because you you've talked about this idea of reliability or appropriately unreliability in the terms of a narrator, but Margot has to consider whether any of her um, her clients or sometimes for that matter her friends are reliably telling her the truth. How can we how can we tell the truth? How can we relate when we're coming from such different spaces and I wondered about that you know like we tell stories to keep ourselves sane we have to tell ourselves yes I am going to do the thing that I'm putting off but when does that story we're telling ourselves become a reality that changes who we are and it sounds like that's kind of what you're getting at when does that reality change us to the point that we are a different person yeah and you know these questions by the way I largely above my pay grade. So I wanted to disqualify <laughs> myself to some extent. But um, my view and my experience with this sort of thing is, um, and, and you know, it's becoming increasingly, um, what's the word, common. It's becoming increasingly kind of accepted um, in society what the nature of reality. You know, if you said even 15 or 20 years ago, if you said everyone experiences their own reality, academics already, well, you know, philosophers and academics largely were completely aware of this and it's totally normal. But I think the general public sort of coming to accept that we all have our own little realities and um, until this world is shattered, we can live completely removed from everyone else and how they view the world. 
Um, and um, yeah, so, so sort of my view of it is in the current, and this is get, getting worse and worse, and we're talking about synthetic media now and deep fakes and stuff like that, but it is entirely possible and feasible um, for someone to believe that, you know, politicians, for instance, this is just, you know, off the top of my head, but there's countless examples. You know, politicians have collectively come together to form this kind of cannibalistic cabal mm. that rapes and murders children. There's a group of people that believe that this was happening and that Donald Trump solely was responsible for sort of undoing this evil. Um, you know, that, that it's possible to believe that. As absurd as that is, as completely insane as it is, in this day and age, with a pretty unhealthy diet of information from, you know, um, ultimately just conspiracy theorists online, other people who are equally as crazy as you, you can form these little communities and you can hold these insane beliefs and nothing, you're so um, insulated from uh, the, the, the nature of everyone else's reality and my reality. You're so just insulated from that that you can accept that and any proof against that, you can just simply choose to, you know, to, to reject. Um, and so that's become, you know, that's become the world and it only happens because of tech, AI, online. Um, I mean, I don't, I don't mean AI. I mean, eventually, this is only going to be worse, become worse because of AI and, and um, synthetic media. Um, but yeah, you can, you can exist in that state, and it's terrifying that people can can believe that that the human brain is possible of believing these absurd things, and as absurd as it was to believe, you know that. Wine is the blood of Christ, or whatever you know. As soon as that was fifty, hundred, two hundred years ago, it's still it was still a common reality. It's not as though you were this lone. It's not as though you were just one, some small collection. But it's insane to believe that. Of course, you know you're not drinking the blood of Christ when you take communion or whatever. But but I can accept people believing that because it was. Um, you know, that was the information at hand. That was the best information you had available. But now, it's this big war of information. It's just people can just choose whatever they want to believe and build their world and their reality around that. And there's almost nothing anyone can do about it. Um, so obviously, you know, you've hit a nerve with me on that because <laughs> I just find it completely bizarre. Uh, and psychologists are sort of, you know, they're sort of scrambling to explain this. Um, in layman's terms to people how does this happen how do people get to this point are these people insane and the truth is they're not, not actually insane it's just it's just how our brains are wired to work <laughs> just, you know um, but yeah I don't know if that answers your question but that's that, my view of reality is and, and our own reality and how we build that is it's just you, you sort of choose and what you know I want to know the seed of that I want to know I want to speak to people who believe in saying things and join cults and stuff. And I want to, I just want to understand the first thing they believed, you know, what, how that cascade started, how they ended up where they are. Um, and it can be something as innocuous as believing, you know, in 
at, you know, like the anti-vax thing. It could be something like that. That's, it's not harmless. It's pretty bad. But you begin believing that and all of a sudden, you know, you're full QAnon conspiracy theorist. Um, so, yeah, it's just, yeah, it's a, it's a real interesting time to be alive. You've got me absolutely itching for the last guests and, and also, also just for anyone, I'm going to, I'm going to now put out a general appeal to the listeners for someone to go and read Tell Me Lies so that I can talk to them about all of the terrific things that we can't get into closely for the book, because it strikes me everything you were just saying there, you have explored in a beautiful microcosm in Tell Me Lies and you've, you've actually pitted two, um, perhaps wrong ways of thinking against each other and it's really interesting to see which one prevails uh but we can't say we can't say without spoiling tell me lies but i mean josh i love these ideas like i said i'm really excited to see you explore them further well yeah that's the last obviously i'm quite deep into the edits of the last guest and so that's why i've been uh, thinking quite a lot about, um, yeah, the, the, the brain and, and how we, what, what we do to sort of, you know, skew our perspective. But of course, to add to the mix, we have uh, people, often prominent meters, members of the media or even politicians who are um, verifiable, you know, narcissists and, and have, you know, this sort of condition that Margot's studying antisocial um, behavior. Disorder, all the spectrum and social behaviour disorders. Um, so yeah, it's, it's it's quite funny and it's a lot of fun. And I, I think you put, put it the right way. I wanted to explore that in a sense, and in, in this sort of microcosm of story. You know, how self-aware are these are these characters really? You know, mm. yeah. It is fascinating stuff and look i'm just going to let everyone know i'm speaking with jp pamari we are discussing tell me lies um if you are a fan you've got to check this out because there is also my copy my copy has a little uh, preview of the last guest and josh has also like very kindly given us some some preview thoughts on that josh thank you so much for taking the time uh to chat to me today no worries always a pleasure and um yeah ho- hopefully everyone enjoy the book and look out for the last guest, which will be out in uh, August. That's it for this great conversation with JP Pamari. Josh's new novel, Tell Me Lies, is out now from Hachette. He's also got one coming out in August. Uh, He is prolific. He is fantastic. So I'm looking forward to that. Great Conversations is recorded on the lands of the Darug and Gunungurra people. The show is produced and presented by Andrew Popel. Stay in touch. You can find Final Draft on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. I think we're still on Facebook. Just look for at Final Draft 2SER. You can subscribe in your podcast app. It means you'll get a new great conversation every week. And it's well worth it. I mean, just this week, we've dropped three episodes of great stuff to discover. I am Andrew Popel. I will be back next week with more great conversations from Final Draft. As always, I wish you a good book and happy reading. Bye now.